was walking home from school on a cold winter's day. Took a shortcut through the woods and I lost my way. <laughs> it was getting late. But I was scared and all alone. episode of the panic attack with <clears throat> big john and while i'm having my coughing fit our guest partner for the night doc is going to make a public service announcement about what he's up to hey everybody thanks for tuning in to the panic attack you know for many years uh those of you who have followed us know that uh, uh, we've been doing podcasts for many years, dating back to 2008 or nine through 2009, actually. Uh, well, uh, we we're now are partnering, but in a different way. And I'm happy to announce that um, I will be uh, starting. Actually, today was the first episode of The Break Wall. It is a new podcast, uh, a news uh, discussion news commentary and discussion and it um, is is uh, debuted today the break wall you can find those uh, podcasts at anchor.fm and also on spotify itunes the whole gamut uh, and also the twitter account social sites at the break wall too Cool. So that's going to be a, a new venture. Very interesting out there on every social media platform. Uh, very cool. Congratulations. And uh, so how was your Easter Sunday without uh, church? You know, we, we got the kids dressed up. We I didn't dress up. You know, I wore my what I've been wearing every day uh, for pretty much the past uh, for pretty much the past. Uh, hold on here. Sorry about that. I've been wearing pretty much uh, the same thing for the past month uh, since we've been on quarantine. Um, but we got the kids dressed up and we did an Easter egg hunt outside at the ham and the scalloped potatoes and the whole, you know, spiel there. Um, good spread and it was all well and good until you did start thinking about 
church and what Easter is really about. It's not Easter eggs or bunnies or chocolates or ham and scalloped potatoes, but it's about something more. And I was watching Fox uh, News. I think it was at 10 or 1030. And uh, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, delivered a really uh, inspirational uh, sermon from Central Park in New York, which, as we know, New York has been uh, hit by this uh, COVID-19 as hard as anywhere in the world. And it was a very moving uh, message with Michael W. Smith playing some uh, songs, music, and then I heard the message from the Pope. So we weren't there in the church, but we certainly did what we could to have some religious flavor to it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's constantly um, a down downside in the media uh, to social media. And, you know, this Easter kind of, brought us all together though through social media um i did about the same thing you did except minus the kids and the easter egg hunt but i um you know went to my mom's house and you know stepdad and had easter dinner and uh before that you know i watched a couple local church services online and then uh Afterwards, um, Joel Osteen had a Sunday morning service, and then he had a special Sunday night service. And so I watched those online. And, you know, it was just, it it was, in a way, even though we didn't have church uh, to go to and be with our church families, I think maybe we kind of got back to being people and being families and friends and uh, maybe a little bit of what Easter, you know, is meant to be about, uh, in the sense of, you know, coming together to celebrate resurrection and then the, the newer tradition of, you know, being with family and putting differences aside or whatever might be going on in the world for a day and, uh, you know, talking about Christ and the risen and all these things. So uh, it was pretty, it was sad we couldn't go to church, but, um, you know, I think a lot of us made the most of it. I saw a lot of people, you know, spending time with just their immediate family online, posting videos of, you know, Easter egg hunts in the front yard, like you were saying, and such like that. So uh, I think it was a pretty good Easter overall. Um, some people that didn't have a good Easter, however, have been laid off waitresses in Ohio. Uh, an article came out today that caught my attention because I had just sent an email to some friends of mine in the state legislature and uh, my congressman's staff. So let me read this article, and I'll read you the email I sent, too, because they're a little bit of one and the same. The title of the article is, uh, for, is Broken Promises of Coronavirus Help for Many Unemployed Ohioans. 
this is from Channel 13 ABC. I don't know what city that's in. Oh, Toledo. Okay. So as the COVID shutdown wears on, so does the financial strain on some people who have yet to receive unemployment. Rebecca Bennett, single mother of three kids, so she gets around, um, and she's kind of cute, actually. Uh, <laughs> single mom of three kids worked two jobs prior to the shutdown. Uh, she says, I probably worked about 70 hours a week between the two jobs. Well, who's looking after, after the kids? <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope there's a, a good grandma or grandpa there uh, to help out. Or Well... She might be spending a lot on daycare and babysitters if she has to work 70 hours a week. Um, so a month after being laid off, financial she's in a financial holding pattern. At first, I was just worried about making it, making less than I would normally. I never thought a month from now, I still won't be receiving anything from unemployment. Rebecca says, her weeks have consisted of calling the Ohio Department of Unemployment numerous times a day. When you do get through to them on the line, they usually put you on hold for two and a half hours. And when you speak to a representative, you're being told there's nothing they can do, just wait. But like thousands of others, there's only so long Rebecca can wait. She says, I have gone through all of my savings I've had a couple of people have given me money just to help get me through. I'm fortunate I have a good landlord who has been reasonable with me through all of this. And that ends her article. Um, my experience with this is a little bit about the same. Um, so I wrote my state representative uh, and my congressman, let an email which they have both responded to personally well the staff at the congressman's office personally and the state rep himself uh says i said i hope this email finds you safe in good health and good spirits i am writing to inquire about flaws and what seems to be misrepresentation about the stimulus and unemployment system i know Misrepresentation is not the case, but if other tipped employees are experiencing the problems my mother is having, the public will start to think their officials lied or misrepresented the way assistance was going to be administered and the type of assistance they were expecting. And then I put number one, the Ohio Unemployment website was overwhelmed the first day tipped employees tried to sign up. Now, I'm partly to blame. The glitch in the system caused the website to read no claims filed. My mom's co-worker signed her up and filed her first claim, but the website didn't register the first claim had been filed. When I saw no claims filed, I unknowingly filed a second claim on the same day that caused a delay in my mom getting her check. Now she made a phone call to unemployment and it was able to be worked out over the phone. And she had within about two weeks or three weeks, she had a check. Uh, 
what I mean, like it was a day or so after the phone call, the check was in the mail, but overall it took two weeks. Uh, here's my real concern. I continued in my letter. Today we found out because she does not have direct deposit, she can only file a claim every two weeks. Why? Why can't the state, the Ohio Treasurer's office print a check every week? Number two, my mom's first check was only $135 after taxes. Tipped employees are used to small checks. They only make $4 an hour. Where is the additional $600 a week from the relief package if there was a delay in Ohio getting the relief package money from the federal government? Will it be retroactive on a future check? To my knowledge, no waitress at blank, blank restaurant have gotten the additional $600. Now, my mom is married, and I'm an essential because of where I work. So, my mom has help. I'm worried about the thousands of other waitresses in Ohio going through the same problem. So, it looks to me like we, I wasn't the only one or my family wasn't the only one to experience this. Um, do you know anything about the delays in the $600 additional money and that's supposed to be going to these uh, tipped employees? Or have you heard anything? So uh, let's just step back for a second here. Uh, so the, sure. sti the stimulus package, my understanding uh, that was passed was if you – met certain income standards you could get up to uh one thousand two hundred dollars if you had kids that were dependent you could get i think it was something like five hundred dollars a kid up to a certain level so that's kind of out there too then i heard something about a six hundred dollar sort of um like i i, I don't know what that six hundred dollar figure is and you're you're mentioning it so is that sort of okay. something that is for people who don't have kids or is that for lower income people? Is that for tipped people? What is that $600 for? That's for tipped people. And what it was supposed to be is, you know, like I mentioned in the, the letter, they make $4 an hour. So their unemployment checks aren't going to be reflective of their actual income. So is this a 600, one time $600 payment? No, this was supposed to be $600 a week on top of their 100 and whatever dollars in unemployment compensation. Okay. So the, yeah, so, so the $600 is weekly, the $1,200 mm -hmm. and the child credit is a one time deal. And then, right. then you have your unemployment, uh, check and that is based that that's that's an amount that's based off of what your income is i i believe is some to some degree or okay now i see what's right. happening here okay well so now that i've got that straight uh one thing i have heard is that some of the states out there have really old computer systems and it begs the question you know millions of dollars uh hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, really, in state budgets every year, every two years across the country. 
why the hell didn't somebody ever update the JFS computer software? <laughs> I'm not saying that's the case right. in Ohio, but it is a question that, and I don't know what the situation is in Ohio, but I know in some states, according to what I've heard um, in the media, that some of these states have really outdated computer equipment. So, you know, let's, you know, put that aside. That is, though, you know, that's a legitimate reason why maybe they're not able to process these claims because the the system is antiquated. Yeah, that could be. Now, I'll give a little lead way on the website um, almost crashing or moving slowly on the first day uh, because this, you know, five million people or so applying for unemployment at once had never been <coughs> thought of. But when your president and your, was it the chairman of the Federal Reserve or chairman of the Treasury? I don't know if they're, are they one and the same? Well, you've got the Treasury the Secretary, guy. which is Mnuchin, and then sort of this other entity out there, the Federal Reserve, is, is something different. So, well, the guy with the big black horn rim glasses. That's Mnuchin. All right, so Mnuchin said that all this money was going to get passed out and passed out quickly. And, you I know, heard starting this the 12, week. That's what I've heard, too. The $1,200 thing was supposed to be uh, going into direct deposits starting this week, and they should hit your bank account on Wednesday, which would be tomorrow. Tax day. So, <laughs> the old tax day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's actually rather odd yeah. isn't it um, it's not tax day anymore it's actually july 15th is tax day but you're going to be getting your uh trump money uh tomorrow so you know and a lot of and people online are trump already money right i mean we called it obama money oh yeah when obama was president so why can't we call this trump money no i mean this is uh you know a kickback to the american people and i i you know yeah, change my view a little bit slightly. Uh, I think it's to keep the natives from getting too restless, kind of like hush money. I think money. you're onto a big point um, there. Absolutely, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't go so far as to call it hush money, or that the natives are restless. But you're nibbling around the edges. I mean, what this is is government decided to, the state governments, not the federal government, decided to shut down, uh, in a sense, the economy. And so when you do that for an indefinite period of time, uh, you don't know how long this is going to last. You know, people need money. And so here, so here, so this is a band. What do people need to understand is this is a bandaid approach. Uh, that's a nice way of saying mm -hmm. what you just said. Um, it's bandaid. It buys the government time to figure out what's going on with COVID-19 and it gives people some money. Right. Well, there's a whole nother set of debate. Uh, about the policy itself, but people need to understand, they need to look at it that way in addition to, you know, what you may think of the policy. Yeah, I I think um, to keep the peace and keep from having, you know, riots, maybe this was a, a good idea um, as far as that goes. You know, a, a big family with a, a big house and big mortgage, that's even the $3,000 that, you know, if you have enough kids and whatever, uh, 
you know, some families that are larger can expect a bigger check. Uh, that's really not going to, you know, help them a lot. But it'll skate them by and keep them quiet, you know. And then now we're starting to figure out this COVID-19 thing. And now we're starting to talk slowly about reopening the economy. Uh, you know, it may stay closed in some states where they're hit hard. Other states may open up a portion of the state uh, and things like that. So it's kind of like, you know, just let's just help people along a little bit. OK, we'll, we'll be kind and say, you know, Trump and the federal uh, Congress wanted to help us along a little bit. Give us something to skate by. Well, on. back to your mom's situation and a lot of other people's situation to that point. Yeah. Um, you're going to get delays. You know, people just need to understand um, there are. So I don't know how many people in the United States. I've heard figures as high as 20 million. Uh, I don't know where we're at right now. Somewhere over 10, maybe, maybe halfway to that estimate. That's significant. I mean, people are talking about oh, potentially yeah. depression level uh, job losses here. Um, in, in, you know, 20% unemployment in Ohio, last I saw, we were at about 700,000 and a couple of weeks ago, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000 in a two week period, which the year right. before we had 390,000 the entire year. So it really doesn't matter what kind of system that you have in, in some regard, um, no one could design a system that can handle that kind of uh, load capacity because you have the technology side and then you have, there's a human side to this. I mean, people need to process these applications and you know, this right. all just takes time. It's just a massive, you know, on one hand, they talk about, you know, flattening the curve for the disease. Well, where the, the curve is not flattened for the economic side of this. And the system is strained. So, you know, on one side of it, you've got the feds that actually need to get the check out. That should be this week or thereabouts. Right. And then the states actually have to process this and get it to people. And there could be a demand issue. There could be a technology issue. Um, there could be a staffing issue or a combination of all three. So people really just need to be patient uh, and, and understand, you know, number one, be patient. Number two, understand what they qualify for. Do you qualify right. for the 600? Do you qualify for the, ta the, the child care? How much of the 1,200 do you qualify for? All of this stuff is available right. online. That way there's no surprises. And that's another thing. You don't, people think they're going to get all this money and may find out that they really actually only qualify for you know, a portion of this. And, of course, then that's going to cause you know, maybe a fourth strain on the system uh, which is, uh, you know, false hope or misinterpretation of what's actually going on. Yeah, I, there's a lot of misinterpretation going out there, uh, you know, thanks to the media and hearsay. It's why, you know, people should be more attuned to the presidential press conferences because, like, some of the questions I had were actually answered in like Mike DeWine's press conference today and 
Donald Trump's press conference yesterday and today. So those things are out there. You got to get it from the horse's mouth, though, not your neighbor or, you know, what people are posting on Facebook. Uh, but I think uh, uh, maybe um, a, a good side to this is maybe people will learn to save again. <laughs> maybe this it this is our depression. And, you know, we had depression grandparents that saved, you know, three months mortgage and three months bills and budgeted and things like that. They put money so, in envelopes. Yeah. You know, it, my so, grandparents had uh, a set of envelopes. And, of course, this was in the day when you actually got a check and went to the bank, cashed it, and took the cash left over from whatever you may have deposited in the bank. But you, you, they went home and they had envelopes for all their expenses, grocery, rent, whatever. And the money went in the mm -hmm. envelope. That's a pretty cool concept, and you know, maybe it's something we should get back to. Or well, uh, we 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 don't deal with money anymore. We well, yeah, we that's deal true. With on, it's all debit cards. online. It's all debit card. People treat their credit card as if it were you know their bank card. Um, you know, you bring up a good point. It was about a year or two ago we were talking about that half of the population couldn't come up with $500 cash if they needed to. Now, right. here we are uh, in a situation where, you know, the first line of defense for people in something like this is what they've done for themselves. And if all that you have done for right. yourself is $500, then that's going to get you a half a month. It's not even going to get you a rent in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm, uh, you know, painting a broad brush on people's behavioral patterns. But, uh, you know, every, there's, you know, everybody has different strains on their life. Maybe somebody had some savings, but just went through it for legitimate reasons. Bottom line is, we got to do this big thing here, in part because people don't have a lot of cash. And really, the system that we have in our country right now through taxes and low interest rates uh, does not um, really lend to savings. It's a spending economy and has been for a long time. When you have higher interest rates, not a lot of spending is going to go on because you get money by keeping your money in the bank. That's just one component of it. But we, we've had low interest rates Taxes are really high, so it's tough to spend money uh, just in general, t you know, local taxes, state taxes. It's tough to spend. It's tough to save money when you have all these demands out there. Plus, just who we are as a people. We're consumers. We want to spend our money. Uh, so I think you bring up a good point. You know, moving on from this, we should do what it's like. How do you prevent yourself from getting sick? Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. When were you first told that? You know, five. <laughs> yeah, five years yeah. old. And, and so what were you also told probably when you hit 15? You know, save your money. You know, uh, and you should have 20% for your house 
pay, for your house uh, down payment. You should have 15% or so for a car, 10 to 15% for a car. Those are high numbers, but that's what it is. Um, yeah, it is what it, it is. It is what it is. Three months savings set aside to live on in the event that you find yourself unemployed through your fault or not. And But, you know, you bring up one, just one more point about yeah. the restaurant industry, since you mentioned your mom. The Ohio Restaurant Association uh, testified today in front of the Ohio uh, legislature's um, economic recovery task force. Uh, the mm-hmm. uh, president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association, John Barker, testified, and I'm getting this from Cleveland.com, Jeremy Pelzer, of the 23,000 plus restaurants uh, in uh, Ohio, uh, they're only able to offer carryout and delivery service. As a result, 51% of restaurants in the state are closed completely, over half of the restaurants and you, you got a volatile industry as is um, a lot of times these places run uh, very thin in terms of month to month. They're close. Half of them are mm-hmm. closed. Moreover, this is the real thing. This is real folks. 3% of Ohio's restaurants, almost 700 businesses uh, are going to close permanently. And another yeah. 2,300 11% expect that they will not reopen at all after this. And we don't even know when yeah. they'll be able to open and what, to what degree they'll be able to offer, uh, you know, amenities to the people who come in. So, you know, we do have a, a health component going on here, but we also have an economic component and we're starting to, to see the reality of that. And the, the bigger point here is a lot of these restaurants are small business people who have worked their entire family owned people who have worked their entire life and put their life savings and in many cases retirement into living the American dream for uh, to to own a business to own a restaurant and a lot of people now are you know th- this what we're talking about here is nice it's a band aid but that's not going to help these people out. Yeah, absolutely not. So I think that's a good point to end this segment on. And we're going to come back and talk at you about uh, the Trump press conferences, uh, stopping payment to the World Health Organization, and the Trump plan to reopen the economy. So we will be right back. All right, so we have a little Godfather music as we welcome back the Godfather of podcasting. That was uh, Slash from Guns N' Roses doing a electric guitar version of the Godfather theme. So today at uh, his PC, Trump said, we're going to stop 
our payments to the World Health Organization for a little bit, like he said, 60 to 90 days, while his administration investigates the World Health Organization's mishandling of the coronavirus outbreak, their China-centric response, as he calls it, and overall, what kind of job the World Health Organization has done. Now, this, you know, is going to send a lot of, you know, liberals into a, a tizzy. Um, I don't know what the World Health Organization has done for world health that I remember. Um, You're not you supposed have, to ask that, that question. I know. You're just supposed to believe it. Um, it you know, the UN in general has been around since eh, after World War II, we'll say, you know, right, 1950-ish. I know Eleanor Roosevelt was our first UN diplomat, but she was like a symbolic diplomat. Um, and this, uh, to me, the UN and the World Health Organization and, uh, well, UNICEF kind of does help like starving children, but that's because American children go door to door with little UNICEF piggy banks that eat or at Halloween. Um, but you know, the United States pays a ton of money towards the UN for the first part of the 21st century and most all of the 1990s. As a member of the UN, we, we were the world police. And so Trump, as, as many conservatives have said, and Jesse Helms was a big one on this when he was alive and in Senate, was it Congress or Senate, Jesse Helms? Senate. Senate. Okay, I had it right the first time. You know, he was a big advocate of not paying, you know, UN dues and stuff because we give them so much of our manpower and things like that. And then when a disaster happens like Haiti or something, we go we go above and beyond, you know, where the you know, our UN dues are supposed to be what's helping, you know, Haiti when they have an earthquake or a hurricane or something. Um, but this crisis has, you know, really highlighted the ineptness of the World Health Organization. And, I mean, like 1990-91 was the last time I remember the UN being uh, a force for anything when the Security Council voted to go into Kuwait, which was 90%, well, 75%, I don't know, mostly United States soldiers, and drive Saddam Hussein out. That was the only time in my lifetime I remember the UN doing much of anything. And, the, you know, they were involved in some other stuff like Kosovo and different things, but they've never done much. So what do you think about us stopping our dues for 60 to 90 days to the World Health Organization and investigating them. Well, it's so I just I just looked up the World Health Organization's website online. And according to them, under the category, what we do, mm -hmm. 
It says works worldwide to promote health, keep the world safe and serve the vulnerable. Our goal is to ensure that a billion more people have universal health coverage to protect a billion more people from health emergencies and provide a further billion people with better health and well-being. Now, that's what they do. Now, focusing in on health emergencies, I'm not sure what that really means, but that's what they say they do. Um, one of the bullets on health emergencies that says here is prevent emergencies and support development of tools necessary during outbreak. Further focusing in on prevent emergencies. In addition, prepare for emergencies by identifying, mitigating, and managing risks. Key part there, managing risks. So managing risks and prevent emergencies. Now, what do we know about COVID-19? Let's put the conspiracy theories aside for a minute. Right. We know that it um, started in Wuhan, China, province, wherever, uh, more than likely at an outdoor raw food market with people eating something, a bat, a goat, a dog. I don't know what. I think a bat. And when you do that, a lot of bad things can happen. That's unsanitary. Now, when that's nothing new, people knew about this and people and some celebrities have been on record all over the globe trying to bring out the fact that this is what happens in China and it needs to stop. Maybe more on the animal rights side of things than on anything else. But still, this has been something that people have known about that goes on over there. Furthermore, this is a world economy now. And with the global travel and goods being shipped all around the world, being handled by a lot of people, and in many cases, labor now in this world is done in places like Wuhan, China, developing areas of the world that have pretty poor sanitary conditions. And that has an impact on public health around the globe. Google Florida, China drywall contamination sometimes. And you can see that this has happened before, where products that come into the country from China are contaminated with disease because of living conditions, behaviors that people know about um, and we need to address. So with all that said, what the hell is the World Health Organization doing? If they're managing risks, mitigating risks, and preventing emergencies under the health emergency category, it doesn't seem like they've done a very good job of it as of late, because it seems like every two years we have some sort of worldwide pandemic. Uh, just go down the list. It seems like it happens every two years. So the United States supports this agency to the tune of $900 million dollars. Uh, right. According to Fox News, the United States is <clears throat> the World Health Organization's largest single donor. And the State Department previously planned to provide the agency $900 million in the current two-year funding period. Trump said the United States contributes roughly four to $500 million per year, while China, $40 million. So 
there's disproportionate, at least between the U.S. and China and probably the U.S. and everybody else. We're funding it. The bottom line is we're funding the World Health Organization through the U.N. Now, why is that a big deal? Because it looks like that the World Health Organization and their influencers in China were trying to cover this up for a period of time cover up how fast this spread, how severe it was. They're probably still covering up the fact that they're now saying that nobody has this anymore and life is back to normal in China. Yeah, right. All right. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe anything that comes out of a communist country. That's just a general rule I learned, oh, about 40 years ago. So you think of Chernobyl, 1986, the nuclear meltdown. Uh, right. It's the tip of the iceberg. You couldn't believe anything that these communists say. It, it's not an Asian thing. It's a communist thing. Um, so anyhow, I think Trump's had it and I would have it, too, because what's what is really happening from all of that? Well, this thing breaks and we know about it. A lot of people downplayed it. People in the media, Dr. Fauci, a lot of smart people originally said eh, it's not that big of a deal. Trump said, we're going to restrict travel to China and other places just in case. And then it kind of went dormant for a while. And part of the reason why it went dormant is because of the misinformation that the World Health Organization was was covering up and spreading about how bad this was. And then finally, it, it, it you know, stories started leaking out and people started getting killed for leaking the stories in China about how serious it was. And then that's when everyone was like, oh, shit, we got a problem here. So, yeah, I think there needs to be an investigation. I don't think there's anybody else in the government that would have the stones as Donald Trump to actually go through with it. Usually what we would hear is a bunch of talk from the politicians. Oh, we got to hold them accountable, but they still get their money. So we need an investigation. One way to get at the truth is to withhold the 900 million we give them and uh, find out how much influence China has within this organization and who knew what and where and when. Yeah, the the U.N. has kind of uh, become a platform for smaller countries uh, that opposed the United States to get out there and just bitch about the U.S. I mean, like the U.N. Human Rights Committee. You know, the United States is always at the top of the list because we have the death penalty in this country. Well, why isn't Saudi Arabia on top of the list for throwing gay people off the roofs of buildings? You know, so the the U.N. is kind of gone from a, a good idea, I think, to an antiquated idea. Um, it's, you know, I remember, you know, 1990, 91, George H.W. Bush talking about, uh, you know, the new world order and how this new order through the U.N., which he was a U.N. diplomat, by the way, uh, would be the future and how the world would pull together. And that after that, it's never happened. Now, this current situation, I think, I mean, you brought up a lot of good points and it brings a light to the fact that nations can work together 
outside the UN. I don't, I have not seen anything about a UN General Assembly or a UN Security Council meeting where they made a decision and recommended something to the rest of the world. Uh, the United States and other countries were taking their own measures while the World Health Organization sat back and I don't remember hearing any statements out of them, you know, that this is what the world should do or we have scientists working on this. It's all been scientists and doctors within the nations working, to, working on things, sharing information. Trump also announced today that we're going to have uh, a way where hospitals can now communicate to one another better. And if Hospital A has uh, excess numbers of something like ventilators, and Hospital B needs them, they can communicate better and say, okay, Hospital B, we'll let you borrow our respirators for a while, or things like that. So with, people within nations are solving their own problems like they should. That's why we have nations and borders. And so it's all shown me that there's an ineptness of government and that private companies like here in the United States can work through government to help out. And the unemployment situation we talked about a minute ago is a perfect example of government inadequacy, the inability to get things out to the people. But private sector is ramping up production of ventilators, for example. We came up with a way to sanitize hospital masks so that doctors don't have to throw them away after one use. They can throw them in a, a bag, or probably a trash bag or something, and then that gets sent off to the cleaners and they get sanitized and sent back. So private industry and government are working together to resolve problems. So this blows the whole one payer, one health system thing out of the water, in my opinion. It blows away the whole idea of a one world government under the UN, and it blows out the idea that government can do things better than private sector, which is everything that Bernie Sanders stood for, it's everything that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez stands for, and to a lesser degree, Nancy Pelosi, and all of the liberals. Well, and, more, and this, moreover, think about banks for a minute. Uh, how, mm -hmm. how they have been vilified by Elizabeth Warren and the other cast of characters that you mentioned as being greedy and taking advantage of people. Here in Ohio, Goldman Sachs is pumping in an additional, this is additional, 25 to $30 million in, in uh, loan opportunities for small businesses that might not qualify for other small business loan opportunities being offered by the government or are, are backed up in requests for that government loan. They, they're, so that bank is stepping up to help small businesses out, many of which we identified as 
you know, closing in the restaurant industry, you know. So but before we start ball batting banks and private business, understand this. It's private business that has stepped up to help produce thousands of ventilators, reusable PPE, um, and infuse a lot of cash into uh, businesses that could use it to stay afloat and to pay people's salaries for not working and keep their business solvent. Yeah, I, I heard, you know, when the, before even the, um, the real, you know, cut down on um, essential employees or cutting business back to essential businesses, you know, some companies, when schools got dismissed, were giving people with uh, school-age children two weeks off with pay so that they wouldn't have to, you know, quit their job. This was when the first um, schools first closed and they had a 15-day maybe uh, recommendation to, you know, stay home, stay, you know, safe and stuff like that, you know. So private business is not the enemy of the people like we're always told by the, the left wing they're not always the greedy money grubbers. I remember seeing a couple weeks ago that Twit Andrea Alexandria Cortez, Sandy, Sand, yeah, Sandy, saying uh, she posted a picture of a like a stock market worker with his head down, and the Dow Jones uh, had dropped, and she said, "This is." what it looks like when capitalism takes a selfie of its final days or something like that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, you want the economy to crash? I mean, as Trump is bringing out good news, and let's talk about reopening the economy. He, he, as he's bringing out the good news that cases are leveling off, new hospitalizations have leveled off, <clears throat> deaths and so on are leveling off. Uh, you know, it, it's bad when anybody dies. Let's not, you know, sugarcoat. But it's not as bad as what it was predicted. And he's out there blasting this out. Now that you see the stock market starting to come back up, like somebody posted on my Facebook today, uh, the, the stock market went back up. Did something happen I didn't know about? Like, yeah, the coronavirus is basically being proven to not be uh, lethal as we thought, and it's not going to kill a million of us. That's what's going on. Well, you know, it um, also brings up but, another topic about health care reform along these lines, and, and that is what is health care reform? What really is health care? And for the better part of 25 years, we were told health care reform was all about in, basically insurance reform. Giving people yeah. uh, coverage—that was healthcare reform. Well, in fact, what healthcare reform is is what we're finding out right now. Whatever you think about the data, I happen to think the initial uh, data sets were bogus. I think that's been proven out, and a lot of our reaction to that—if um, I suppose if you're going to err, it's better to err this way, with, by you know being overly prepared than underprepared, but. At some point, you have to, you know, readjust. 
and I think that's what Trump's trying to do to get at one of your other points. But healthcare reform is deliverable services. It's the ability for right. states and the federal government to quickly react to pandemics, to these kinds of things. And what we what we are finding out through going through this is how to handle this in the in the future, which is important. And that's what real health care reform yeah. is. So we should move away from the Bernie Sanders of the world who simply want to make health care reform about increasing the size of government and taking over two fifths of the economy in the country so they can control it and hand out a bunch of free stuff. All right. That's not health care reform. That's something else. We need to be focusing on hospital beds, doctors, the ability to get resources from one area of the country to the other area of the country, among a whole host of other things that are fully grounded in deliverable services, the um, operations of health, not just the insurance part of it. Because look, when there's a global pandemic like this, it doesn't matter if you have health insurance or not. And, and Trump is even saying, you know, people aren't going to have to pay for COVID testing. So what the hell good is the insurance? Right. You know, we'll take care of it. But if, but if you can't get yeah, to a I ventilator, think, uh, if you can't get to a hospital, if there are not enough beds, if there are not enough doctors, that's a real problem. Yeah, that's the, the real crux of the biscuit. And Trump has said that, you know, it's up to the states to be prepared and then the federal government to come in and help them. And I'm like, oh, my God, somebody finally had the courage to, to say slack. that. That's what it, it is. And what we've seen know, is these governors, they, they just want like Cuomo. They want bailed out from the beginning. You know, they, they just they just want the right. biggest that they can grab and to hell with everybody else. A responsible federal government would say, all right, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? What do we have? And what's the priority? Right. And, you know, I think Trump's done a good job of that. This administration's done good at that. Um, you know, Governor DeWine and uh, Amy Acton have caught a lot of flack in Ohio, but they're doing the opposite of what Governor Cuomo is doing. They're taking initiative and saying, if we if we don't have it, if we can't get it off the market, we're going to make it. And, you know, we're going to restrict things. You know, DeWine, <coughs> DeWine was one of the first <coughs> governors to restrict things. You know, when Cuomo and these people were saying, go to Chinatown, get out there and enjoy the parade tomorrow and blah, blah, blah. You know, but, you know, states need to stockpile things. And, you know, Trump has now got enough ventilators in the pipe to restock the um, federal uh, stockpile. And also, you know, medications are being pumped out by American companies. And some companies in India are helping us out. And, you know, he's going to put things away for a rainy day. Why, why didn't Obama and all of them in their big health care reform push do these things? You know, they said, you know, um, Ohio, you need, you're asking for 30,000 
face shields and masks. Okay, here you go. We're not going to replenish the national emergency stockpile. Okay, so New York, you want respirators? Here's respirators. You know, when you had the swine flu and the, the bird flu and Ebola, they just doled things out, you know. And Trump's like, hey, we're going to put things back for a rainy day at the federal level, but the state's got to pick this up. And now he's moving into uh, forming a task force to see when, how we're going to reopen the economy when the doctors say it's okay to start reopening the economy, when it's okay to start socializing again. So he's putting together a task force, which is being criticized by the liberal media. Uh, you know, fake me too, or Alyssa Milano posted a picture of the uh, initial Trump economic task force. And it's of course, Ivanka's in there and uh, I don't know, six other people. And she said, not one medical person on the task force. I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> it's an economic task force. We already have the health task force, you know? So the health task force is going to tell Trump, it's okay to open the economy. And then he's going to tell the economic task force, okay, it's time to put your plan into action, you know? And he spelled this out for people. And Rachel Maddow was on TV tonight going, you can't even think about opening well, the economy. Well, she's, she's a mental so now pe- And, you know, good, God bless you for being able to, yeah. um, you know, handle MSNBC. But you know, the one thing of caution I'll say is, or thing of note, caution, a thing of note in caution. I, I heard some questions to Trump about uh, from Jonathan Carl, ABC News. Will you listen to the recommendations of Dr. Fauci? Will you listen to the recommendations of Dr. Bricks uh, if uh, they say we can open the economy or not open the economy? And it is almost as if they're, you know, putting the recommendation above the decision above the authority to make the decision as if the recommendation is the decision. We have a president, we have a governor, or whatever you live, you have a governor. These are the people that are empowered to make the decision, not unelected bureaucrats with all due respect to medical professionals. That's one side of the coin. And as we now mm-hmm. have uh, come to realize that this was not as serious as what we thought, which is good. To some degree, these efforts at mitigation, stay-at-home orders have helped. Uh, I don't know to the degree that they have helped, but they've helped. And the response of the states have been overwhelmingly good. Some states have stay-at-home orders. Some states have different levels of stay-at-home orders. Some states have partial stay-at-home orders. Some states don't have stay-at-home orders. They're all, except for a couple, are relatively on the same trajectory. Time will tell how that plays out. We also don't know if this thing's going to make a comeback uh, later this year or next year. So we need to get uh, some uh, Mm -hmm. antibiotics and we need to study the people and test the people who have had this to see, you know, how do we develop a vaccine and things like that. So all of those things are happening and they're going to continue to happen and happen for a long time. But, you know, I'm sympathetic to the argument that some make 
that if you have a sick economy, you just, you don't have an economy. Well, we need an economy. All right. And we got to get right. people back to work. And I think Trump is seeing that. And I think he's right to have another task force that is that is somewhat dependent on what the medical experts say. But also, look, the Ohio House of Representatives started a task force of this economic recovery task force. There are politicians uh, within the state of Ohio that are calling for targeted um targeted economic activity to resume in areas where there are not um, uh, major problems. Where I live at, it's the most infected area of the most infected area of the state. Probably going to be a while before things get going around here. But there are other areas in the state that isn't. Moreover, there's probably 20 or so states that are in relatively good shape nationally who have had various levels of stay-at-home orders or none. They need to get going. And that's what this other group is going mm-hmm. to be tasked with doing is to find out where and how we can do this. So this is, if you ask me, um, great presidential leadership to recognize, to yeah, recognize the dual role now that we are to play. If this were, was worst case scenario coming to reality, we rightfully would not be having this economic conversation right now. If 2 million people, you know, were dying of this thing, there's no way you can entertain a notion of economic activity right now. Um, But that's not the case. The case is we're doing well. We're doing better than expected to whatever degree these efforts have worked. They're working. And now it's time to pivot and make some really tough calls really get deep because you know when you tell people millions of people are going to die if we don't shut these businesses down people are going to say shut them down lock it up but once that fear gets inculcated into the society it's real difficult to walk that back even when the data says you can walk it back and start to reopen things because people are going to be skittish for a really long time so the tough work is is lying ahead and Trump rightfully recognizes that you can't flip this on, even if you say you're flipping it on. It's, so we got to get started now. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to dig ourselves into a bigger hole, and we may not be able to get out of it. Yeah, we, we definitely don't want the economy to be at the point where we're going to have to do stimulus part two. And also, um, you know, get get the economy rolling again while it's able to roll. Um, so I think that's a good point to end on, unless you have something. No, to I think add. we've covered it well. I, we're in good shape as a country on okay. this. There's a lot of work to be done, but we have to follow the science from start to finish, not just at, from the start. And we also have to be mindful of the economic uh, impact that all of these decisions are happening because that's very real as well. Right. So I'm going to, we're going to end this segment and then we're going to come back and talk to you about the current state of the Cleveland Browns and Las Vegas Raiders and their potential draft picks. So we'll be
Okay, in about five seconds there, you heard uh, Jimi Hendrix, Fleetwood Mac, The Beatles, and uh, another band I forgot. But that was a little montage of some classic guitar riffs. So, let's talk Browns first. I'm a retired Browns fan. I, I've got uh, a I soft think you're either part. retired and I'm recovering. Yeah, so... Uh, I think the Browns have one of the most solid offenses, maybe one of the best, at least with names, in football. And correct me if I'm wrong, they have two good running backs. They have Odell Beckham Jr. and uh, another Pro Bowl wide receiver. I can't think of his name. Uh, and then you have Baker Mayfield at quarterback who – had a good rookie campaign and then kind of not such a good sophomore season. So you're the Browns expert. What, uh, what are the Brownies looking like this year? And uh, what are some potential draft picks or needs that they're going to fill in the draft? Well, you know, you bring up a good point for the first time in a long time. Um, the biggest off season needs for the Browns, are on the defensive side of the ball. Now, the most important position is offensive tackle, but wide receiver, tight end, running back, quarterback, uh, they're not even in the top half of, of needs. You know, right now, outside of tackle, uh, the Browns need some help at safety. Uh, they need um, some defensive line depth, and uh, they got to address the linebacker position. So it seems like we're going into this draft with picks in, you know, first, second, third, fourth round. Uh, so 10th <clears throat> pick overall in the first round. We've got two picks in the third round. So we're able to, you know, really hone in on, you know, a strategy here. It's not like we have, you know, two first rounders and then not another pick until the third round. You know what I mean? That doesn't do you a whole lot of good. Um, so with that said, I, I think that the first pick that they're going to take will be offensive tackle, uh, at the 10th, uh, pick in the first round. Now I say all this and I'll throw some water on the whole thing. Uh, I don't think Baker Mayfield is going to be the starting quarterback come Halloween. I mean, assuming that we play football, uh, I don't think he's going to be the starting quarterback by the time Halloween rolls, rolls around, uh, and it's going to be one of those situations that's going to be uh, 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 injury due to benching, if you follow me. <laughs> I'm not sold on this guy, personally. Uh, I think last year I saw a lot of bad habits that you don't see with quarterbacks who are taking the next step. I'm not saying this guy needed to go out and light the world on fire, but you can tell a successful quarterback – um, early on, if this guy has it, has the potential. I didn't see that last year. So I'm not optimistic. But with that said, you know, the Browns are going to be looking to shore up that offensive line and tackles about the most important position. You put a good offensive line in there, you could make a, a below average quarterback at least look average. And mm -hmm. with some of the other talent that we have, 
that might be good enough for the Browns to win eight games, nine games, maybe get into the playoffs. So I think when you look at offensive tackle, there's a kid out of um, Alabama that is uh, Jedrick Willis, probably the number one or two. Uh, there's a guy out of Iowa, Tristan Riffs, one or number two. And then there's Andrew Thomas from Georgia, uh, two or three. So I think one of the, the those is going to end up with the Browns. And they can then start to turn their attention maybe at uh, a linebacker position. I'd like to see Malik Harrison uh, go to the Browns, maybe in the second round. He's an Ohio State guy. Uh, Ohio State players really translate well into the NFL, especially on the defensive side of the ball. So I'm optimistic there. Um, and we've got two third round picks. So, you know, maybe you could package something and maybe bump up a little bit into the draft. I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to get too cute. But if we could go offensive tackle and inside linebacker with quality picks. Uh, I think the Browns would be off to a really good start in the draft. Yeah, I you know, I think the Browns are set to be a good team. Who do you think is going to replace Baker at quarterback? I don't know who their backup is. What was it? Is it Case Keenum? Oh, yeah. And he's not too shabby. I mean, um, he's not he's not long term, but he's a good backup to have and I think that was a smart uh, move to pick him up. And I think it shows that the team is worried. The front office is worried, at least, you know, physically or ability, um, you know, health or ability uh, for Baker. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Again, I I don't think he's going to last the whole season for – I I just don't think he's going to last the whole season. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, So Sports Illustrated's mock draft – has I'll read up through the Raiders and well then does that mean you can stop at the second one oh yeah I'm gonna skip to the second (laughs) draft pick I forgot the Raiders no no, I mean you can stop at the Raiders don't the Raiders usually have the first or second pick oh yeah they used to this time they have in round one they're the 12th pick then they got the 19th pick from the Khalil Mack trade with Chicago then in the third round, they have num- picks number 80 and 81. Also in the third round, they have pick number 91. And then fourth round, they have pick 121. And fifth round, they have pick 159. And Well, that, anything- that tells me they're going to try to move up into the second round. Yeah, they're going to have to do something to get a second round draft pick in there. Uh, what are the um, team need? What are the needs with the Raiders? The Raiders, it's wide receiver and defense. And who's their quarterback? Derek Carr. Still Derek Carr. Okay. And they signed Marcus Mariota in free agency. Backup. Yeah, as a backup. And you know, Gruden and Maylock are big on Derek Carr, so I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, Sports Illustrated and everyone else is projecting the Bengals to take Joe Burrow from LSU. Uh, Washington, they're pretty much 
everyone's agreeing that Chase Young from Ohio State will be the second pick. Uh, then Jeff Okuda from Ohio State will go to the Lions. Now, there's a projected trade-up by the L.A. Chargers from the New York Giants to pick up Justin Herbert, the quarterback from Oregon. And then the Fens are supposed to take Tua Tagovailoa, whatever, QB from Alabama. And then uh, the Giants are expected to take Tristan Wirfs from Iowa with number six, which that helps them. The Giants have a good quarterback, decent wide receivers, even without Odell Beckham Jr., uh, a good young tight end and a good young running back. So they need, like the Browns, they need that offensive lineman to block for those guys, though. So who were you and, saying was going to trade up with the Giants? Uh, the Los Angeles Chargers need to trade up because Phillip Rivers left for the Colts in free agency. Okay, so, so so obviously the Chargers would only move up a couple of slots. Yeah, that's going to cost up. them. That's going to cost them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're gonna have to, so, so so Miami though is in front of them. That's who they'd be leapfrogging. So both I would assume then both of those teams need a quarterback. So what it comes down to is the Chargers don't want to take um, the second. They, they want to pick before Miami. They want the choice. They want the better yeah. of the options. Right. They want the, the best quarterback possible, which is, according to Sports Illustrated, um, is this Justin Herbert from Oregon. Uh, and then – Yeah, he's 6'6", 25. That's a solid frame for the NFL. Yeah. And then the Alabama quarterback – uh, yeah, he's he's a dud in my opinion. That guy, yeah. whoever gets stuck with him, is is probably well, going to be not far back on the Johnny Manziel train. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, he's a Johnny Manziel. Uh, and yeah, and the one thing about you know Manziel or this Taya Taga, Taga Villa, whatever. Tua Tagovailoa. Yeah, yeah, they're both shorter quarterbacks. And uh, like Mayfield, you know, Mayfield's only six foot with cleats on. And he has a hard time seeing over the line, I think. And he has to be someone that's rolled out uh, to really be effective. He's not a drop back passer. Well, if he's, uh, a dr if he's drop back, it's got to be a quick route. Yeah. And that so, was the problem last year is that they took a lot of those – quick strikes out of the out of the mix now sports illustrated has the browns taking Derek brown defensive tackle from auburn so that would go against your logic of an offensive lineman is their need so maybe they're going to look for that offensive lineman in the second round well just according yeah, to si offensive tackle safety and defensive line Mm -hmm. or the top three needs for the Browns, you know, in addition to just offensive line depth, but you know, any team basically can claim that they need offensive line depth. Uh, but that, that's an interesting pick. I guess that would, that would mean that the Browns 
well, I mean, of all the moves that you talked about, Arizona remains in their position at eight and they're projected to take a tackle and um, the offensive tackle uh, from Iowa is going to go to somebody, um, the Giants, who would fall back two spots with the Chargers. So I guess maybe SI's thinking that uh, Andrew Thomas, potentially the next best tackle, doesn't outweigh uh, the defensive line needs. I guess that would be the only way I could think of it. But I, I would say, and I'm not a scout, and I haven't looked at film, but just off of need and importance, you got to have a tackle. You, you've got to shore that position up uh, unless you can somehow figure out a way to nab somebody in free agency uh, to help you out. Right. Now, the Raiders are a team that's been known for going into free agency. And uh, I, the last I saw, their biggest free agent acquisition was um, Jason Witten from the Cowboys. Uh, now, he, the Raiders have two good young tight ends. Um, and one is a receiver and the other is a blocker. And Jason Witten, however, was known for both. So maybe he's there to be a coach on the field and teach. Um, oh, I can't think of his name now but they're receiving tight end how to block and then teach the blocking tight end how to receive. That way defenses can't read as much into, oh, they got the blocker out there now, they're going to run. And, oh, they got the receiver out there now, they're going to throw. So, But with their draft picks, the Raiders need to help Derek Carr out at wide receiver. They have guys that are uh, possession receivers, but they don't have a guy that can take the top off the defense. So I've heard two names come up, and SI has them both here. The Raiders, they projected, will take Jerry Judy from Alabama. And then they say in the, the little paragraph below, uh, Jerry Judy or C.D. Lamb from uh, Oklahoma. And they're both playmakers, and that's what the Raiders need. They thought they got it in Antonio Brown, but instead they got a, a nut job. Right. And he, he was gone quickly. Um, I listened to Mike Mayhawk's press conference today while I was waiting to hear from Trump. And the, the Raiders GM, Mike Maylock, the Raiders got a little advantage here. Uh, he was an NFL network scout. So after the uh, lockdown of everything, you know, they had the uh, NFL combine. And then shortly thereafter, we all got locked in our houses. So all they have to go on now is film of these guys. So having uh, a GM that was used to only seeing people on film for the NFL network and judging them on film is to the Raiders' advantage uh, in that case. Mm. Uh, let's see who the Raiders are. Their other need is safety. Uh, one of their safeties left in free agency. Uh, let's see here, 19. Oh, well, 
SI is predicting that Philadelphia will trade up to get wide receiver Justin Jefferson from LSU. So where does that put the Raiders? Let me scroll down. Las Vegas Raiders, they say, will take cornerback Jalen Johnson from Utah. And I heard about him, too, in a CBS mock draft. And he's uh, physical, fast, and a playmaker. So this is the Raiders kind of cornerback uh, in the draft. You know, they missed uh, Byron Jones and their deal with Eli Apple fell through. So they have to get a corner with one of their first two picks. They, they also got some a couple of linebackers, which was another desperate need in the on the Raiders. Their linebackers were terrible last year. Uh, Vontez Burfick was there for a little while, and then he got suspended then he for mm-hmm. – <laughs> got another one of his infamous targeting cases um, and got suspended for the rest of the year, which I think the time he targeted Antonio Brown in that playoff game was the start of Antonio Brown's downfall. Uh, I think there was a pretty severe head injury there. So, but uh, those are the glaring needs for the Raiders. They addressed linebacker through free agency. Uh, I can't remember who Mike Maylock said they picked up, but they picked up two linebackers that will help them out. And then they've got to get Derek Carr some people to throw to. And this Jerry Judy or C.D. Lamb are the two best. Uh, Judy is an exceptional route runner, they say. Uh, Phil's avoid the Raiders have had since the end of Antonio Brown's saga last year, which I mean, you wouldn't even count Antonio Brown because he was only there through a little of training camp because he came in with frostbitten feet, uh, and then he had the helmet gate issue, and then he, he never wanted to play. You know, you don't. No. show up with all that ending to play. Well, and I also heard that he uh, was discussing with social media advisors on what to post on social media in order to get kicked off a team. And he went into the Raiders office and got into a shouting match where he called uh, Mike Maylock, the general manager, a cracker. So, uh, yeah, he just never wanted to play. Uh, he wanted to get a big payday and then leave. And he, Bill Belichick couldn't even turn him around. He played like one game for the <clears throat> Patriots, and they got rid of him for you know personal and attitude reasons. So this is uh, their their problem. Now something else interesting to me is uh, Tom Brady, quote-unquote, the GOAT, is now the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Bucks. Now, some people said that he's going to get along great with their head coach, who's an offensive-minded coach. Do you think Tom Brady will be the GOAT in Tampa Bay, or do you think he was at Bill Belichick's um, – I don't want to – What's the word? He was a product of Bill Belichick's system. 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. System or not, I've watched Tom Brady not only 20 years in the NFL, but for two or three years at that school up north. And I can tell you that the guy's a winner. Um, you know, he obviously didn't enter into the NFL with, uh, what was he, like the 200th pick. Uh, you know, he obviously didn't enter into the NFL with a lot of fanfare, but it just proves to show you that, you know, there are intangibles in the game of football that aren't measured by a scout. It's just what's inside. And a lot of times you don't know what's inside a guy until he straps on the helmet and gets out on the gridiron. There was a lot of things that happened uh, that benefited Tom Brady. The first and foremost is Drew Brees gets injured. Not Drew Brees. Drew Bledsoe gets injured. Yeah. All right. Now that opened the door for Brady. And um, the rest is history. I'm not going to say you're going to find out if it was Brady or Belichick that was driving the car now that they've parted ways. But I'm going to tell you, Tom Brady's a winner. And I still hold that Joe Montana is the greatest quarterback I've ever seen in my life. But, you know, I, I, I don't think I would lose any sleep if someone were to, you know, prove that Brady was – because I've seen Brady up close and personal more than I ever did Montana. And I've just seen Tom Brady do amazing things. And if the – uh, Bucks, the Buccaneers. Uh, I like saying that name, Buccaneers. Um, if they can, you know, get some weapons around them, you're going to need an uh, offensive tackle. Going to need a running back to give Brady some options. Uh, then you know, I think they can make some noise because you put a guy like Tom Brady on a team in this day and age in the NFL you are guaranteed eight or nine wins guaranteed. Uh And that doesn't include the two or three games that he's going to win for you just for him being him. Yeah, he's uh, I'll give him credit. He is a student. He's a film watcher. Um, You know, his arm isn't what it was three or four years ago, but you know, if the receivers are open, he's going to throw to them. He's going to get the ball there. And you're right. He does have a head on his shoulders for the game itself. And he can win you some games. It kind of reminds me of when Joe Montana exited the 49ers and played out a few good seasons in Kansas City and took them through the playoffs, and, you know, he was the original captain comeback in the NFL. He was known for bringing his team back, starting with that Dwight Clark pass. Um, I was too young to remember. It was like 1980-ish, but nonetheless, that that all started it. And then, you know, he got Jerry Rice and uh, other receivers, and, you know, made them better. And Brady, you know, could be that guy that makes everyone else better. I think that's uh, what you're getting at. He's going to make the team better for him being there. And more importantly, he doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. 
uh, you know, he left New England, left on his own terms for whatever reason. It's not like a situation where, you know, he's got to prove himself to, to cement right. his legacy. The guy has been to nine Super Bowls in 20 years and has won six of them. Went through the regular season undefeated. It's just been, you know, above any other competition in the league uh, for an extended period of time. This is just something that he has to do for himself. This isn't something he's doing to prove that he, you know, was slighted or to cement a legacy or to win a championship. And so I think that's an important point here. You know, he could go down to Tampa Bay. He could get hurt. He could finally show his age at 42 or however old that he is. But that doesn't take away from his legacy. It doesn't take away from anything he, that he has earned uh, to this point. Uh, it could very easily have happened in New England. And, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I, I'm kind of rooting for him um, to see that, uh, see what happens. Yeah, I think – I mean, Tom Brady is going to help win football games. I don't know what the running back situation is in Tampa Bay. Uh, I know they had some good wideouts, but Jameis Winston just couldn't get his life together and, you know, couldn't learn the NFL game. Uh, guy has all the talent in the world. If Jameis I mean, if, if Winston and the Buccaneers offense – were good enough to throw for what did he throw for 30 touchdowns now he threw for 30 yeah. interceptions or whatever that's not good you're not going to get that with tom brady but if they were good enough to produce 30 touchdowns with Jameis winston they're in good shape mm. with tom brady yeah i i think they'll be good they they're projected to take a offensive tackle from georgia because uh that's the the need there, and it says the bru- the Bucks need the Buccaneers. I like that word Buccaneers too. It's a fabulous uh, word. The Buccaneers need to protect their forty-two and a half year old QB, and there's decent chance they would miss out on all four of the top tackles if they stayed at the fourteenth pick. So Thomas uh, Andrew Thomas, All American right tackle his freshman year, then moved to left tackle the rest of his college career, he could immediately start at right tackle for the Buccaneers where they have a hole. So, yeah, Brady, I think the Bucs could be a team to watch this year. I mean, they'll be a team to watch one way or another to see how Tom Brady does. You know, people are going to be watching them to see, like I said, was he – a product of the Belichick system, or was he a, just a, a winner like you were saying? Um, and I tend to kind of lean towards, you know, the guy knows how to win, and he's football smart, so he can be coach a coach on the field for these other guys. Uh, they, have, they had good wide receiver talent, like Mike Evans, uh, who's a speedster and can make a – you know, 10-yard catch into a touchdown real quick. So, well, if we get to play NFL football this year, it'll certainly be a storyline to watch. Yeah, Yeah, I hope so. I hope uh, 
that they do. And something I heard on the radio the other day was they were talking about just this. Uh, will there be an NFL season, not just because of the uh, virus, but 72% of people surveyed said they would not be comfortable going to a large excuse me, sporting event until there's a vaccine for the coronavirus. Well, we know that's going to be like six months after the start of the NFL season, minimal. So uh, are there going to be fans in the stands? And now if we're still social distancing, are the team's going to have to change their seating arrangements? A lot of, you know, rich people, corporations buy those luxury sky boxes. Well, that's a petri dish <laughs> uh, for germs, you know. Um, are we going to have people sitting in every other seat? Uh, is, well, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, you can't, if, if you're saying to the population that life is not going to be the same for a long period of time, especially if there isn't. Uh, a vaccine or known antibodies out there in people that can fight this thing off if they get sick uh, or herd immunity, um, you know, natural sort of immunities. How in the hell do you pack a stadium with 80,000 people? And, you know, number one, that's not the moneymaker. Uh, that's a big, that, that's an environment. That's a cosmetic um, benefit for players and for the fan experience and vision experience. I mean, that makes money. Don't get me wrong. Right. That, that makes a lot of concession money for people, but the money in football is in television. You know, you're talking, mm -hmm. it, you know, the average football game, there's 70,000 people in the stands, 60,000 people in the stands. Well, there's probably 20 million people watching on TV. So, right. The, what they have to do more than anything is get the games on TV. And if that means playing in front of right. nobody, uh, then they'll play in front of nobody. Um, people will still watch. Mm. And trust me, after months of being in the house with nothing to do, people are going to watch anything. They'll watch paint dry, uh, you know, for whatever right. reason. I mean, what, there was some guy, well, whatever, they'll watch anything. But if they do let people into the stadium, yeah. how in the hell do you pack it, you know? Right. How do you pack? I mean, people, I mean, are just piled on top of each other. They're, uh, you know, the Raiders have the black hole. The Browns have the uh, dog pound. And those people don't stay in their seats. They all cram down toward the railing and you know lean over the railing and try to touch the players after they score a touchdown and whatever so you know are people going to stay you know an arm's length from each other at these games you know maybe for the first couple but not permanently so you know that's a, a an interesting thing now i know we've all at least i've been a, a bitch about this uh, way that the NFL TV is set up. I live between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. And so, which 
for a Raiders fan sucks. That's but, another story. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> being a Raiders fan sucked for 20 years. So, yeah, whatever. But uh, they are – what you usually see is like you either see the Browns or the Steelers on the local NBC affiliate, which is uh, out of Youngstown. And then on the Fox affiliate, you know, you'll have an NFC game, but you hardly ever get a double header. And I bitched at the local TV network and they said, look, that's not our fault. Uh, I mean, I tweeted them and they came back to me with several tweets that the NFL only allows so many double headers and you're not allowed to play two double headers uh, two weeks in a row. So every other weekend you're watching uh, either professional bowling, infomercials, or um, professional bowl, bowl riding after the NFL game is over, unless it's a 4 p.m. game. And then, you know, the first half of the day you're waiting for the infomercial to be over. So maybe now – We'll get double headers every Sunday, at least Say for this year. The, the, and the NFL has a policy that says you can't have double headers two weeks in a row. Yeah, that's according to the uh, uh, NBC well, affiliate. Silly. Or it's either that, or like you can only do it. Like, if you do it two weeks in a row, you can't do well, it the any third week. seems silly. Like, I mean, I could understand, like, so, you know, I'm clearly in the Cleveland market. Um, I could understand mm-hmm. not having a game on in competition with that inside of the, the market, the heart of the market, right? Um, mm-hmm. I could – and I could, all, all, I could also understand – having games on in the market that would be of interest to a Cleveland Browns fan. Like when the Browns aren't on, then the Steelers are the, are the game in the area or the Bengals or something. But to Mm -hmm. have a restriction in place that says you can't have double headers week in and week out. That seems silly to me. Yeah, I think it is too. And I think it's, you know, probably something that goes way back to owners being afraid that fans won't show up. Just like, you know, they had the blackout rule where if the game wasn't a sellout, it couldn't be broadcast on TV. I think they finally got that out of the contract because, I mean, there are definitely years when the Browns weren't sold out, but they were still on TV. Um, but yeah, the the NFL. Remember the NFL used I to have do, the blackout yeah. rule. Yeah, where and people could, would. I, I don't know. Uh, there was always that, rumors that Art uh, bought a uh, model, bought a bunch of tickets to get the game on TV, or there would always be some group of businesses mm-hmm. that would come in together at the last minute and buy the tickets so it would be on TV. And and it it was it always sucked because the blackout was like an hour's drive from the stadium or something like that. And so, you know, I was always in the middle of it. And I think it happened a couple of times when I was growing up where they, where they didn't sell and the game was blacked out. 
But by and large, in Cleveland, that was never a problem. Right. So that's pretty uh, interesting. Um, you're in tune to a little more than I am even to state politics. Well, we have a few more minutes here. Um, there's a an outfit trying to get some ba- a ballot initiative on for uh, voting access. And today the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that they could have all four of their uh, measures in one ballot issue instead of, I guess the initial ruling from the Secretary of State was it had to be four separate measures. Well, I don't, know, I don't even know what the, the topic is. <clears throat> oh, okay. I mean, what's the well, topic? Um, one, one thing is they want... Um, automatic voter registration when you go in to sign up for your driver's oh, license. I think an, another one is they want same-day voter registration. And then I don't know what automatic, the other two were. I'm not from my computer. Reg- There's some people that are uh, promoting the idea of automatic voter registration. So when you turn 18, you're just automatically registered to vote, whether you want to or not. Yeah, that might. But this was this was something. What what was this? uh, This allowed you to uh, vote and register on the same day. Now we used to have that in Ohio. Vote and register on the same. Register and Mm -hmm. vote on the same day. We called it uh, Golden Golden Week or whatever. There was a period of time where. If you were inside of the 30-day window to vote, to register to vote, you could show up to the Board of Elections in person and register and cast a vote on the Mm -hmm. same day. Okay. Well, I have it here on Ballotpedia, which is a really good uh, nonpartisan way. Are you still there? Okay, I'm, I, I'm I here. Can hear you. Yeah. You hear me? Okay. Yes. Do you hear me now? Okay. Let's see if I can get this back up. So the Ohio Voting Rights, Ohio Voting Requirements Initiative may appear on the ballot in Ohio. It's initiated constitutional amendment. The initiative would amend Article 5, Section 1 of the Ohio Constitution, making the following changes. Remove the requirement that voters must register 30 days prior to an election and, but maintain all voters must be registered. So I guess they would have same day registration. Well, you would. You could point. register. You could. The you require, could register to vote whenever you wanted to. Um, require absentee ballot requests by military personnel and voters outside the U.S. be sent days before the election. 
46. Well, I lost you again. Cut out. Between the app now and the you. internet. Yep, I got you. You hear me again? All right. So the other thing in this is automatic registration at motor vehicle departments. Allow voter registration at polling locations and require 28 days of early voting. So yeah. if I'm still with you, I got, did you get all I, of that? Yeah, I got most of it. Now, all right, so you can now register on the day of the election at the polling place if this passes. You could register automatic. You're automatically registered when you go and get your driver's license if you're 18, I assume, at the Department of Motor Vehicles. So I, whenever you register your car even, like when you go get your sticker every year, you're automatically registered so to vote at that point. So there's some voter registration, but it's, it's tied to your vehicle registration. Right. But that could get interesting because you could – Theoretically, live. Couldn't you live in another state and register a vehicle well, in Ohio? It brings up a little work uh, in the New Hampshire voter registration laws uh, that I predicted in 2016 would have in, impacted the outcome of the presidential election. And I think that's what they were trying to do because New Hampshire, I contended, was to be the next Florida or the next Ohio. And I think the Clinton campaign knew that. And unfortunately for them, they lost Pennsylvania um, and the blue wall went down. But what happened in New Hampshire was is just mm -hmm. exactly what you said. A bunch of people uh, came into the state and took advantage of, you know, same day voting and all this other thing. And but the drivers, you know, obviously you have to claim a residence in New Hampshire. Well, the, there was not a corresponding spike in vehicle registrations. So it, it makes you wonder, you know, you had mm -hmm. thousands of people all of a sudden come into New Hampshire. And for New Hampshire, that's a significant amount of people. Um, you know, people say there's no voter fraud. Well, this raised the eyebrows of a lot of people because months later, there was never a spike in vehicle registrations. So did all these people move into New Hampshire and mm -hmm. just not have a car? <laughs> right well this are to me this opens up all sorts of avenues for cheating you know if i can walk into any polling place and register to vote and vote that day who's going to stop somebody from going i mean it would have to be a large group of people but the Democrats are known for being well, able to pull that is. together. This is, you know, these changes okay. are not made to expand the voter franchise opportunities for people. Um, what they're, what this is all designed no. for, is to enhance, to increase the chances of a high Democrat turnout, and that is because their people, by and large, uh, have to be organized to come out to vote. 
you know, they actually have to be taken to the polls. Right. And so if you have a situation where yeah. voting is, you know, absentee ballot by request only for a legitimate reason or otherwise vote in person on one day, you know, in 16 hours, that's nearly impossible for them to get their people to the polls that they need to get there. But if you extend this out for 20 days, 28 days, all of a sudden now it's a lot easier to rent charter mm-hmm. buses and to get people to the polls. Now, the Republicans have an opportunity to do this as well, uh, but their people usually turn out the vote in general. Right. So, so that's what yeah, this is Republican. about. You know, let's just cut to the chase. And so now they want people to be automatically registered. So that takes away another hurdle for the Democrats. You know, now they don't even have to register their people. It's it's one contact only. Hey, here's your here's your carton of cigarettes and go in and register and vote at the same day. We don't have to bug you two days in a row. Right. I know uh, in Mahoning County, when they started their early voting, uh, you know, the buses would show up at the Board of Elections filled with Democrats uh, but that didn't work out for them too well last one. They lost uh, their base in Trumbull County, and they almost lost to Trump in Mahoning. Here's where I got this uh, idea from. Is, um, on Twitter, I was looking to see what was going on. And Plunderbund, uh, at Plunderbund, Ohio GOP efforts to keep automatic voter registration and other reforms off the ballot have been thwarted by the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled six to one and ordered state officials to certify voting a voting access measure as a single ballot issue, overturning previous a previous decision to split it into four parts. So originally, the Ohio, I assume, legislature and um, secretary of state wanted each of those measures that I just read to you to be a separate issue. Uh, Now, the organizers have to collect half a million signatures by summer while also social (laughs) distancing, this tweet says. Uh, at, at Plunderbund Plunder is a left whatever the hell a Plunderbund is sounds like a blog. Okay, I I assumed no, that I thought it might be a I gay don't know who runs it, but, but um, it's it's a left wing blog. It's a Democrat blog, but yeah. Um, so um, we've been they would have had to have collected if if there were four separate. Uh, measures that means they would have had they to would get have had to get two million signatures yeah. now they only, right now now they only have to get five hundred thousand but so for at least the next what how many days are in it's about April? 15, yeah, 31 more days in April. 30 whatever fifth for the next 15 days they can't go out and circulate uh, that gives them the month of May. I don't know when signatures are due. It's usually around June or July. So they've got about a month or two to get 500,000 signatures. Uh, 
Well, and they I also have to get, get the signatures. So, they have to get a certain but, amount of signatures in each county. You know, that that's another yeah, that's another thing right. that, that people don't too. know about is one, the signature requirement is based off of how many people voted in the previous gubernatorial election. Well, we had a, a high turnout in twenty eighteen. So the, the, the standard for signatures is going to be a lot higher than what it's been for the past four years. Because if you remember in 2014, Kasich won big, 60-plus percent of the vote, but hardly anybody showed up to vote. Yeah, the yeah, Democrat candidate was lackluster. Right. He, he was, this race was didn't have a driver's license and was found in a parking lot at 2.30 in the morning with a foreigner. So, and he didn't like to show up to work, allegedly. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was easy for a period of time to get on the ballot for some things. But now it's a little bit more difficult. But moreover, you have to actually get a certain amount. Like, you can't just take all these ballots and go to three counties and get the signatures. You've got to go down to Vinton County and get a certain amount of signatures down there. There's, that's like the most rural county in the state. So, I mean, right. look, this is all about getting, making life a little bit easier on Democrats. Um, and that's what these provisions are. They're going to tell everybody that it's about, you know, um, you know, removing barriers to vote and fairness and things like that. Um, but the second part of it is, you know, you, you should have to want to vote, right? Um you should have to make an affirmative. Yeah. You know, it is our right. It's a, it's a fundamental right, but you also have to assert some kind of ownership to that right and ask to be registered at the minimum. I think online registration, I think no fault absentee, I think early voting vote by mail, all of these things are just silly. You know, if you're, if you're not going to be around on voting day, then you can, legitimately request an absentee ballot but beyond that you should go to the polls with all that said if they can get on the ballot for this november considering all of the problems we've had not only in this state but in other states with this virus and voting in person this damn thing's likely to pass and people could be voting for it because they like the mail-in ballot option well they're also going to get a whole bunch of other things with it Yeah, a lot of things they don't expect. So it's um, something that's going to come down to, uh, again, an effort between different people, just like the marijuana legalization thing that was on there a few years ago. Um, You know, different groups are going to have to band together against this and come out and say, look, it's it's the wrong thing. We need an opportunity. I mean, that's why we have a 30 day registration deadline, because the Board of Elections has to verify that you are who you say you are. You know, when you go to register to vote, right, they get the card and they look, they send you a card back that says, was this you? (laughs) You know, they, they verify who you are. And right. Of course, we have to hear all of these claims about, 
you know, homeless people registering park benches as an address. What do we do? I mean, you make all these accommodations, but to a point it, it becomes, you know, now the integrity of the system is in question when a guy can show up off the street on the day of the election, motivated by what other factor we don't know and register and cast a legitimate ballot, even provisional, uh, cast a ballot that has the authority of constitutional protection to be counted and and that's a big deal when we can't verify right. who they are and moreover you can almost vote yeah, that, in this state and never see or interact with a person Well, you know, the, after they get this, they're going to want to switch people over to online voting. Online voting. You know, that's going to be the next fight. You know, that'll be in our lifetime. We're going to see that fight of why can't we just sit at home, log in with our information? Uh, you know, you'd have to put in like your right. date of birth and your social security, I would imagine. Uh, and vote from your living room or wherever your computer is or on your cell phone and get voted and vote. You know, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you know, and it's because, you know, we've got generations that are about what's the easiest thing for me. What's good for me, you know? Um, Now, this is off this topic, but the generation coming up behind the millennials is said to be more conservative than even like generation X or the millennials. So maybe we're going to see a swing back to things where younger people are a little more commonsensical because they've seen and learned from mistakes like what this is going to be a mistake if it passes and it's already there in some States and we can see the mistakes and the, like you said about Vermont, you know, we can see all that stuff now in hindsight. But uh, so that was trending on Twitter. And then also trending on Twitter is the hashtag. How can, how 2020 could get worse? 21,000 tweets. Uh, how do you think 2020 could get worse uh, than Biden the coronavirus the that we're already in? <laughs> well, you uh, stole Pelosi my answer. The but yeah, the Democrats take uh, the Senate. Uh, uh, the Steelers win the division. Michigan beats Ohio State um, in football. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ways 2020 could get worse. <laughs> That could almost get not only get worse, but almost unbearable. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that would be a, a bad year. But, but you know, seriously, it could get uh, worse if you this know, thing goes away. If the and we're allowed to kind of do things again, you know, I just want to go out to eat, right, and sit down in a restaurant. Um, it could get right. worse if we you know, have to go through this again because this virus came back, which it very well could. Uh, 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my get worse would be, you know, there's no NFL season, no college football season. Uh, the virus, we get let out of our homes and the virus comes back and we have to all go back into shelter for a second time. And, you know, by the second time, the government's going to be out of money to give away. So well, now the, you're really going to have people uh, up If it a gets creek. to a second time, and, that's, uh, I mean, I think you're going to have some problems if this continues on much past the 1st of May. Um, but it, it, you're going to really have problems yes. the second time around, especially because the numbers were so bogus. Uh, the initial numbers, the, the models were so off this first time. No one's going to believe it the second time. And again, that doesn't mean that the politicians right. like in our yeah. state, DeWine, made the bad move. If you were faced with that sort of evidence at the time, a big unknown, you probably, if you were rational, would do the same thing. The problem was, is the data that he was given that a lot of people relied on has since been walked back significantly. So social distancing has an impact. We just don't right. know to the degree, the actual degree that it had an impact because the initial projections were so off. But if you take this down into October, November, when flu season typically kicks back up again, and they say, we've got more cases, people are going to be like, BS. Right. Yeah, this is going to be, it's going to be a hard sell the second time. And I, I wonder how many businesses will thumb their nose and stay open. Um, I mean, bars and restaurants can, they can physically send someone from the health department in and say, no, you're closed. But um, I know of a manufacturing company in Youngstown that uh, what the, their uh, aluminum extrusion, which is like the bending aluminum, and they are closed down because they're non-essential. Are businesses like that going to stay closed? Is the construction business going to stay closed through the summer? Like you're starting to see people getting uh, you know, new roofs put on their houses already. Uh, you know, <laughs> I guess that's an essential business, but is this going to, you know, continue on? And are these companies going to eat, bite the bullet a second time around when well, we I, were off I still have so my much dry the first time around in, with and, the, you know, the number? We, I got a service that comes in for uh, dry cleaning. I don't use it uh, anymore because of, uh, you know, I don't need to wear a shirt and tie every day anymore, but they're still allowed to do that. <laughs> so so you can have clean clothes under this well i think uh what's your final thought on um the world today what uh well you know say i never something thought philosophical I to take us out a, a republican president would say that i have total and complete control over the states and have conservatives say that that's okay. It's all becoming surreal. Um, there would have been a collective freak out in this country 
had Obama said some of the things that Trump said. Uh, but with that said, maybe Trump is just kind of spouting off. I don't know. Um, but we'll see. A lot, the, the point there is everything is surreal anymore. Yeah, and I was uh, unnerved by Trump when he said that also. When he said, I have complete power, he backed off of it a little bit today and said, you know, it's going to be up to the governors, but there's going to be a strong advice from the federal government to open things up. Uh, I think, you know, this whole thing, we need to keep praying for each other and everyone around the world, American ingenuity and the ability of Americans to pull together is now saving the world a second time around uh, from a different type of war than World War II. But now countries are coming to us for help yet again. So God bless America, and let's all pray for one another tonight. And we'll see you the next time. Thanks for joining me, Doc. Good night, man.